0: All right. last week we had an introduction to Advent. We looked at Genesis 3.15 and the promise of the coming seed, the seed of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent. And we looked at the Scripture and we determined that that promised seed, based on what the Scripture teaches us, that promised seed of the woman is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to look at that, at the corporate character of that promised seed. Remember, we said that seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to look at that seed from a different point of view. We're going to look at it as God made a promise to Abraham. In Christ, we are that promised corporate seed with his power and his authority. We are commanded to continue exercising the same head-crushing power of Christ over our enemy, the serpent, Satan, the devil. With the start of Advent, which is today, the first Sunday of Advent, leading up to Christmas, with the start of Advent, we will look at the promise of the coming seed, who is Christ, and we will do so today in the context of Christ gathering for himself a head-crushing people who make manifest the corporate character of the seed. The corporate seed of promise who is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's us. We are the church. We are the people of God, the children of God, born of the Spirit by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are that corporate seed. Our text today, I'm going to read to you, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that we read last week. And then I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 1, I mean, Genesis chapter 7, the first seven verses, where God gives to Abram the promise. Father, we ask that you would, Today, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds. We ask, God, that you would teach us through your word. We ask that you would help us to lay down, Lord, false understandings, misrepresentations, things that we take and we hold on to, believing they are true, but in fact they are not. Help us, Lord, to lay those things aside and to look with eyes wide open into Your Word and allow Your Spirit to bring light and illumination in that Word that we would be a people transformed for Your glory, conformed to the very image of the Son of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that You would do this, that we would be a witness and a testimony in this world for Christ, the glorious Son of God and the only Savior of man. Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now we're going to fast forward about 2,000 years to Abraham. Found in Genesis chapter 17. Not the first time we see Abraham in Scripture. We first encounter Abraham in Genesis 12. Where God makes the blessing or declares the blessing given to Abram, remember, Abram was the one called out of his land, out of his country. And here in Genesis chapter 17, God comes to Abram when he's 99 years old and he makes the promise that he will have an heir a son, a descendant, Genesis 17, 1 through 7. Then Abram, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations, plural, nations of you, and kings, plural, kings, shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed. The King James Version says, your version probably says, if it's not a King James, uses the word descendants there, but it is the word, literally the word seed. Between me and you, and your seed or your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your seed or your descendants after you. This is the word of the Lord. So the promised seed is singular and it is corporate. We look at The singular character of that seed last week when we said that promise, the first promise of the coming of Jesus. This is Advent. We're celebrating the coming of Christ. We're not waiting for Christ to come. He's already come. Now, He's going to come again. He's going to rule and reign on this earth. But a lot of people are so focused on the final coming of Jesus They have forgotten that he's already come, and they have forgotten what he actually accomplished here. And Christmas has become this celebration of gift-giving, and I think we as Christians should give gifts and should celebrate greater, more heartily, more passionately than anyone in the world because we truly understand why we are giving gifts, why we are celebrating this this season, But we need to also be careful that we don't get caught up in the worldliness and the traditions of men to the point that we forget that Jesus came and He actually accomplished something. He actually, in fact, in His own words, finished something when He came. And so we looked at the singular nature, the singular character of that seed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ last week. Today, I want to talk to you about the corporate character or the corporate nature of that seed. In Scripture, there is both a singular character of the seed as well as a corporate character. The seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 is Christ. But Christ is not alone in that promise. Christ came to redeem all of his people who belong to him by faith. By grace, through faith, you have been saved. It is the gift of God. Speaking of gifts and gift giving. And that corporate seed, that redeemed people, are part of that promise given at the very beginning in Christ. Galatians 3.16, we looked at this last week where the Bible interprets for us what that promise actually meant and what all of those promises God gave to Abraham meant. Paul writes it for us here in Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as in many or as of many, but as of one and your seed, who is Christ. So Christ is the seed, the promised seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And here in Galatians 3.16, the verse I just read, Paul teaches us that Christ is that promised seed, singular when he writes, and to your seed, who is Christ. And those promises made to the seed of Abraham refer to Christ, but they do not, listen church, they do not exclude the descendants or the seed of Abraham. Specifically, they do not exclude the seed of Abraham or the descendants of Abraham who are counted as his seed and heirs according to the promise through faith in Jesus Christ. That would be us today. If you are trusting in Christ, If you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and you have put your trust in Jesus, the promises made to the seed, Jesus Christ, are promises to you in Jesus Christ. What Paul is teaching us is that all the promises of God given to Abraham and his seed, who is Christ, are found and fulfilled only in Christ. Now, we don't have time to do it today, but for instance, you can jot a note down and you can go read John chapter 8 and you can see the discourse between Jesus and the Pharisees where Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. In other words, he said, you're physical descendants of Abraham, but you're not the seed of Abraham because if you were truly Abraham's descendants, you would not reject me. You would embrace me. In fact, you would recognize who I am. But because you are of your father the devil, because you're not the seed of Abraham, you're a liar and a murderer just like your father is. And what Paul is saying is those promises made to Abraham are found in, fulfilled in, experienced in Christ. And the good news is, is that Paul gives us hope. He teaches us that all of those promises of God given to Abraham and his seed, who, who is Christ, are found and fulfilled in Christ. And so he goes on later, a few verses down in Galatians chapter 3 and in verses 26 through 29, he helps us understand more fully how to take this in and how to understand this for ourselves today today. Not just for him in his day, not just for Abraham in his day when Isaac was born, but how do we as children of God, how do we as followers of Christ, how do we as the corporate seed understand these promises? And Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 26 and 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You're not Abraham's seed because you have ethnic Jewish blood in you, You're not Abraham's seed because you can somehow trace back through Ancestry.com a Jewish relative that existed centuries back in your lineage. No, you are counted the seed of Abraham because you are in Christ by grace through faith in that promised seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ. That means the promise is to all who are in Christ. This is why Paul says, there is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is now neither slave nor free. Our ethnicity doesn't matter. The color of our skin doesn't matter. Our social status does not matter to God. If you are in Christ, you are an heir to the promises that God has made to Abraham and his seed. All who are born again of the Spirit are Abraham's seed. In Abraham, we see the clear expression of the corporate character of the promised seed. In Christ, those promises are fulfilled and made real to all who are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise through faith. The seed of the woman is Christ and His church. The promise of His coming is singular. And corporate. It's both. We see this pictured in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We very often call it the book of Revelation, but I like to refer to it by its title, given to it by, by the Lord, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The opening words. If we just use the revelation, we fall into the trap of thinking about the Antichrist being revealed and thinking about cataclysmic events taking place in some future time. And we're all caught up in the revelation of those things, but that's not what the book is about. The book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we see in the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 12, verse 1, we see a picture of Israel giving birth to the Messiah. Let me read Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. John writes, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. That's not accidental imagery there. That's on purpose. And you can go back to the Old Testament, and you can see this is a clear picture of Israel. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. It is amazing to me that there are people that I have actually personally encountered who did not know that Jesus was a Jew. In fact, I would submit to you that there are a lot more people than you realize who have no idea that Jesus was a Jew. In fact, today they call him a Palestinian. There are many today who purposefully call Jesus. A Palestinian, not a Jew. That's on purpose. Jesus was born of the seed of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. You can trace the lineage back in both of the Gospels, in Matthew and in Mark. And they'll mention both. Both will mention Abraham. One, in fact, goes back to Abraham, uh, or Starts and leads up to the show that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. In Luke's gospel, the lineage goes all the way back to Adam, pre-Abraham, 2,000 years before Abraham, because Jesus is the Son of Man. He is absolutely 100% human, and at the very same time, he is absolutely 100% divine. He is the God-man. He is the Son of Man. And here in Revelation 12, 1 and 2, here's a picture of Israel pregnant, ready to birth a child. And we're not going to read this. We've already gone through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, but we know that that woman gave birth to a man child. And there was a dragon in the very next verse. The next sign John sees is a fiery red dragon waiting to devour the child, the man child that the woman gives birth to. Well, guess who that is? That's the devil. So we have a serpent, a dragon, in the very beginning of the Bible, of the record, Genesis. It's the serpent, it's the dragon who comes to deceive the woman. And here in Revelation, John is picturing for us this reality that now the promised seed has come, Israel is pregnant with the birth of the Messiah, and there is The dragon, the serpent, waiting to devour the man-child. This is a picture of the devil seeking to stop the promised seed from coming forth. Since the beginning, since that moment when God proclaimed the doom of the serpent, the serpent has been working through history trying to stop the coming forth of that promised seed. But guess what? He has worked in vain. He has worked to no avail. For the devil cannot stop the plan and purpose of God. You, Christians, should know this. You should live by this, knowing that the devil cannot stop the plan and purpose of God. I didn't say he can't do bad things. I said he cannot stop the plan and purpose of God. The devil has always been destined for defeat and so he is defeated today. In Revelation in the revelation of Jesus Christ we see the revelation of his church in the offspring or the seed of the woman. These are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is a description of the church. Revelation 12:17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring because the male child ascended to the throne of God, just as Jesus did after his resurrection. He can do nothing about that child, that man child who ascended to the throne of God, but he can go after her offspring and this is what we see pictured here. And who are her offspring? That word offspring is the word seed. It's actually in the Greek, it's the word we get the word sperm from. But it is the transliteration from the Hebrew word that is literally seed. He went on to make war with the rest of her seed who do what? Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of God. Of Jesus Christ. The offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, are the redeemed of the Lord, the children of God in Christ. Her offspring, her seed, are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, promised to prevail against the gates of hell, promised from the mouth of Jesus himself, The word testimony here means witness. It is the church of the Lord Jesus that has the testimony or the witness of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the testimony of the promised seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. Remember in Genesis, there were two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between your seed and between her seed. And today we still see, just as Jesus talked about in in John chapter 8, then there are still people today trying to stop, trying to stop the testimony of Jesus. You do realize the world wants you to shut your mouth and stay quiet. Now you can talk all you want in church, but be careful with those open doors because someone out there might hear you and you could offend somebody with this thing you call the gospel, with this message about Jesus Christ. I mean, we all know he didn't really exist, right? It's just a myth, just a figment of somebody's imagination. But if you want to believe in Jesus, that's fine. That's your right, I guess, as an American. At least, at least it is right now. That, that could change. No, nowhere did God tell us to be afraid of the world. Nowhere did God tell us to live our lives in a way and tiptoe around people and things to make sure that we don't offend them with the truth. And if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if the offspring of the woman who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, if, if we are not going to speak the truth in love, then who will do it? Because we are the keepers of the truth. The truth has been entrusted to us. The Word of God, the holy, inspired Word of God has been entrusted to us and we are to hide it in our hearts and we are to open our mouths and let it come out. And you don't have to try to offend people if you tell people the truth. The truth is offensive to people. It just is. I mean, the truth is offensive to me oftentimes. But I've got to get over my offense And realize that when the truth is spoken to me, it's spoken to me for my good, not for my harm. We have to get over feeling bad about telling people the truth. Because we are commanded to tell the truth. So we are the people of God who carried the testimony of Jesus Christ. And there is a seed of the serpent. There is a world of people out there who have rejected Christ, who do not want your testimony of Jesus Christ to go forward. Christ has gathered in himself a people that he will use to crush Satan underfoot. He is gathering together in one all things in Christ that most assuredly means that God is gathering together in one a people, a people in Christ. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven through 12, Paul writes, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might, listen, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. You do realize that both in heaven and on earth are those who have the testimony of Jesus. Those saints that have gone before us, Father Abraham, Moses, you can go down the list, your family, your friends, your loved ones who died in faith, they have the testimony of Jesus in heaven. We're here on earth and we have the testimony of Jesus right here on this earth in Christ. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Christ has made the riches of his grace abound toward us in all wisdom. No small part of that grace given to us, abounding toward us, is the reality that Christ is still crushing Satan under our feet. I read this verse to you last week. I want to read it again, Romans 16:20. Toward the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul makes this statement. And the God of peace will crush, will crush, looking forward, will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. So on one hand, you might say, well, wait, I thought you said Jesus has already crushed Satan under his feet. And now you're saying, Paul's saying to the Romans, He will crush, and the answer to that question is yes to both. Yes, he will. He has, and he will. Paul writes that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Think about that statement for just a moment. These are the kind of verses in the Bible that confuse the world because they don't know who God is, because they're dead in their sin, and they are darkness. And someone might say, well, how can the God of peace crush anything? Why would the God of peace crush someone, even the devil? Because isn't God going to forgive the devil one day? I've had people tell me that also. That they firmly believe that God will even forgive the devil one day and the devil will be in heaven with everybody else. And I say, you better go read your Bible again. There's nothing contradictory about the God of peace crushing his enemies. In fact, the scripture is full of exhortations and encouragement to God's people that God will indeed crush his enemies. Now, there's a way that we are to bless our enemies. And we don't bless them by giving them more tools to destroy us with. We bless them by praying that they might come to their own destruction in the cross of Jesus Christ, and no longer be our enemies, but become our brothers and our sisters. That's what it means to bless your enemies. That they would come to know Jesus, and no longer be our enemies. God is not at peace with Satan. God is conducting a spiritual warfare, against the powers and principalities, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, through his angels in the heavenly realms, and through his church, on the earth. The outcome of the war is not in question. Jesus has already won the victory. The scripture is clear about that. But the battle is not over. The scripture is also clear about that. Paul says in in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. So... The battle's not over. There are still enemies that must be put underfoot. It's not a question of if they will be put underfoot, but when they will be put underfoot. For Christ is already victorious. In Romans 6.20, Paul informs the believers in Rome that God will crush Satan under their feet shortly. So it's not a matter of if he will crush Satan under their feet. It's a matter of when. And Paul says it will happen Shortly. And here in that verse in Romans 16, 20, Paul is referencing the promise God made in Genesis 3, 15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And in doing that, he is reminding that church in Rome that they are part of that seed. They are the corporate expression of that seed promised in Genesis three fifteen. Guess what? We are the corporate expression of that seed promised in Genesis 315. God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That pictures God placing Satan under the feet of the church to be crushed. This is still happening today. And it will continue to happen until Jesus finally comes to put his last enemy underfoot, who is death. In fact, the scripture says all things have been put under his feet. Christ is the head, we are the body. That means we are the feet that God has placed all things under. Listen to Ephesians 1, 21 through 23. Paul writes, or 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Christ is the head over all things to the church. We're the church, which is his body, verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If he is the head and we are the body and all things are placed under his feet, that means all things have been placed under our feet if we are in Christ. Christ is the head over all things to the church, the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And God has placed all things under Christ and his body, the church, the fullness of him. The language here is not ambiguous and neither should our understanding of what it means for us today. It means we have been placed over all things. Christ has given us his authority and commanded us to go and make disciples. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus opens the conversation, the commandment, the commission with these words. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Christ has given us his authority and commanded us to go and to make disciples. The devil has no authority He is defeated, he is dethroned, and his works destroyed. We are commanded to go forth in victory in the authority given to us in Christ. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, verse 8. And that is exactly what Christ has done. It is finished. In other words, the devil cannot win. There is no question here. He cannot. And he is limited to do only ever what God himself allows. The devil can go no farther than God allows him to go, and he can do nothing that God does not allow him to do. He is an utterly defeated foe. His power and authority has been delegated. That is, the power and the authority of Jesus has been delegated to the church. With the coming of Christ comes His power and His authority. Advent is the celebration of His coming. And with the coming of Christ, Christ brought His power and His authority. And it is to be exercised over all of His creation. In the very beginning, when God created man and placed him in the earth, He said, go, subdue it, take dominion, be fruitful and multiply. When Jesus said to his disciples, and he was talking to his disciples at that point with him on the earth, but he was saying those words for us today, for we are his disciples. And that commission we call the great commission is no different than what God told Adam and Eve to do in the very beginning, to go forth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What were they to fill the earth with? They were to fill it with the image of God they were to fill it, and because they were created in the image of God, they were to fill the earth with that image. The prophet says it like this. He said, there is coming a day when the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. How is that going to happen? It's going to happen as God's people, as God's church goes forth in His power in his authority, advancing his kingdom of light, dispelling the darkness of this world and the knowledge of the glory of God will cover this earth as the waters cover the sea because we, the people of God, the spirit born redeemed of the Lord will fill this earth. That's what Jesus told us to do when he said, go and disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Jesus didn't say, go tell them, suggest to them that they should do what I say. No, he said, you go and command them to obey all that I have said. Luke chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, to my brethren up in the Appalachian region of the United States, they interpret this scripture far differently than I do. They think this somehow gives you a license to pick up snakes and let them bite you, and they're not going to die. Of course, many have found out that that's actually not what this scripture means. This scripture has nothing to do with you being immune to the poison of a snake. This scripture has nothing to do with you picking up a snake in unwise foolishness and allowing it to bite you or believing that you can charm it where it won't bite you. This doesn't even mean... This this has nothing to do with slithery snakes in your garden, or in your chicken coop. Some of those you might want to kill, others you might want to leave there because they actually can be beneficial. This is not about that. This is a reference all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Who is is instructing his disciples here? It is Jesus, the promised seed, who came and crushed the head of the serpent. And he's saying now, I, Jesus... The promised seed of the woman, I now give you my authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. This is not given as a promise that snakes won't hurt us. It's given as a reference to the promise that the seed of the woman would one day come and trample the head of the serpent. And that day has come. That's why we celebrate Advent. For Christ has come, he came and he did conquer and he did triumph over his enemies and Satan has been crushed under his feet and that means that God has crushed Satan under our very feet. This is what Jesus was declaring when he gave his disciples authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. In Christ, we have nothing to fear from the enemy for he cannot hurt us Christ has triumphed over him. And this is why we are commanded to give no place to the devil. He cannot take from us, but we can give place to him. Otherwise, the command would not be in Scripture. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Or James 4, 7, where James writes, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We are to give no place to the devil. We are to always resist him as we are submitted to God in obedience to Christ. Now in Christ, God has given us his abundant grace to live and to do all with thankful hearts to the glory of God. This is why God says, be thankful for all things, and it also says to be thankful in all things. When you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it's hard to be thankful. But yet, the scripture says that we are to be thankful. Why? Because the scripture has also taught us that Christ has overcome death. And in Christ, death has no power over us. We're all going to die one day, sooner or later. I hope it's later for all of you, myself included. But we will all meet death, but death has no hold on us. Death cannot hold us. I love what John MacArthur says. Death is simply the servant that takes us and leads us to God, face to face. That's all death can do. And one day, death, even death, will be no more. The last enemy to be put underfoot is death. We have nothing to fear. Our lives are to give testimony in all things to the one who came and crushed the head of the serpent. And may we ever live with thankful hearts to his glory. Amen. Let's prepare to come to the Lord's table. We just celebrated Thanksgiving as a national holiday, but as God's people we are called to be ever thankful at all times. Our invitation to this table of thanksgiving, and that's what Eucharist means. It is literally a table of thanksgiving. is a constant reminder of that for which we are to be most thankful, the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not have to be members of Christ Fellowship Church to take communion with us. We confess the Apostles' Creed because we believe in the Holy Catholic, the Holy Universal Church, not the Roman Catholic Church. They're our brethren too, if they, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, have been saved. But if you count yourself a member of God's covenant people, you are welcome to this table. Let's all stand. Excuse me. Your charge today it is not in great ways but in small ways that we most often find <clears throat> Satan crushed under our feet. Hold on. <clears throat> It is not in great ways, but in small ways that we most often find Satan crushed under our feet. We are charged to give no place to the devil. Still, we often find ourselves giving him ground that he could not have taken otherwise. We do this mostly in small ways, through small actions and small shifts of attitude away from gratitude. It is the little foxes that spoil the vine, the scripture teaches us. And so it is the small things that we are most often challenged by. We are prone to pay attention to the big things that often draw our attention and draw our gaze. And while we are focused on the big event, the enemy takes advantage of the distraction to tempt us in small ways we think are not important, but they are. God has told us that if we are faithful over small things, He will make us master over greater things. As a church, Christ's fellowship must be diligent to be faithful over the small thing. As your pastor, I must be diligent to be faithful over the small things. And I will confess to you that I need your prayer in that. For those things are easily missed in the business and the busyness of life. Our charge from God is to be faithful and to be thankful in and for all things, both small and great, both sweet and bitter. For we are those who have the testimony of Jesus. And may we carry that testimony gloriously. To his glory. Amen.